Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor-at-large out in L.A. And Ann, we had a nice break from focusing too much on Oscar-related stories, but this week we have a really serious excuse to do that because uh, the Oscars added 600-plus new members and... Boy, do they address the Oscars so white. Pretty obvious. (laughs) Pretty obvious. By the way, they also announced, uh, just so you know, uh, you know, uh, mark your calendars. The Oscars will take place on February 26th, 2017. It's a real thing now. Yeah, it is the real deal. So uh, basically 683 new members and... The, you know, especially uh, if you look at the actors, for example, um, is just a long, long, long list, uh, including people that you would think would already be in there, like Idris Elba. So there was a whole there was a whole group of of people who who basically could have voted for their own films last year, like Carrie Fukunaga and Idris Elba for Beasts of No Nation Ice Cube for Straight Outta Compton, Ryan Coogler, Michael Jordan, T- Tessa Thompson for Creed, um, and you know the list. The list of people that the I, I mean, I have I have they they moved the needle in so many different ways by literally doubling the number of people. They last year they had uh, three hundred and twenty two invitations to join the Academy that they sent out. And the way it works is that you either are, um, most people who work in the industry who want to be members of the Academy basically are uh, lobbying via people who recommend them, uh, people, you know, who are peers who go to the branch and say, we want, you know, we want her or him to be, to be invited this year. And then each branch makes the determination. And this year it, I have the d- distinct impression that there were way, 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 way more people who weren't aware that they were they no being considered. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I was texting with one person I, I won't name and, and it was sort of like, congratulations, you got into the Academy. And the response I got was, what is that? What does that mean? It's like, wow. Lexi Alexander, the director, learned about it on Twitter and tweeted about it. And I checked with the Academy and they sent out, apparently, Cheryl Boone Isaacs, the president, sent out a welcome to our, you know, world uh, email at 11 o'clock Pacific in uh, yesterday morning. But uh, maybe they didn't have all the right emails. Who Maybe well, people weren't people reading are- them. People are shooting movies and doing things, and it just seems like a weird process that they just kind of announce, you know, this is our new bunch because that's the message when, I mean, there is still a step involved, right? They have to accept. They still have to accept. They have to, and and they also, some of them were invited by different branches, so someone like Ryan Coogler can decide whether he's a writer or a director, and and someone like... um, Who's the other one? Uh, Mariel Heller. That's an interesting case where literally she's made one movie, you know, oh, and I think the like world that. of her. I'm, I loved Diary of a Teenage Girl, I mean, they, but that is unusual for the I mean, Academy. I, part of me, I, I kind of I love it. It's also kind of it, it throws you off because it, the Academy asserts itself, at least the way that we tend to relate to it. It's really representing these these experienced Hollywood names. That's where I think there, that, that is an unusual, very, uh, I mean, each of the people, there's a thing on, on, on the website that you can look at where they, they break it down and they have all the different categories and who they Lots are and chance. what their credits are. And most of them have at least two credits. And in her case, she only had one. I mean, it's one thing to take Julie 
Dash, who who is is someone who has been overlooked. You know, her big film was back in 1991, uh, Daughters of the Dust. I mean, that's Although a- it's worth pointing out, Daughters of the Dust was woefully underappreciated when it, and it is being re-released and restored right now. So there there is it does seem like well maybe they were reminded of that during this process and also hey they need some more diversity. They clearly made lists of every single person in the industry of any stripe. You know, writer director and you know they the or look at the look at these numbers the 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 uh among the 683 invited 46 percent are women that's a huge percentage for in this universe and then so they went out of their way and then the academy instead of being 25 percent female assuming they all accept will be 27 percent female and by asking 41 percent of the people they invited were people of color the percentage changed from eight to eleven percent. And so uh, a lot of them were in the actors category and the director's branch, which has been so male, right? There were only 35 women in the director's branch. They invited 53 to join, which is a 150 percent increase. Now there are 88 women in the director's branch. It's worth asking though. I mean, does this really tip the balance in terms of anything that can create real tangible results in terms of voting or in terms of the way that the academy makes decisions as as a group or I would it- say if this academy based on all the people they just invited including Nate Parker who hasn't who is about to have a great big movie with Birth of a Nation but so you know still- you know but you know you go through this list of all the people they invited they're all people you you know who've been around a while who who are doing great work Chadwick Boseman America Ferrara some of them are working in TV. Vivica Fox, um, you know, Eva Mendes, uh, you know, Adipero Oduye, Harold Perrineau, you know, Michelle Rodriguez, Anika Noni Rose, another one who's who's getting a lot of attention in TV. Uh, you know, people know these people. They've been around forever. Now, some people are objecting to Damon Wayans and Marlon Wayans. Well, I, guess what I would say it's like, why those two? Why not all the Wayans? You know, is there was there some kind of bias towards two Wayans? They have some conversation about which Wayans to invite. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Obviously, that's an issue. And then they invited nine cinematographers who are among the 283 international people from 59 countries. So, so if you look, especially in the crafts, you uh, the directors and the craft, you see the huge number of of uh you know someone like um Anna Moylart from Brazil who who's a great director who's made a lot of great movies or how about uh Kirsten Johnson the documentary cinematographer who shot Citizen 4 this film is not yet rated she had camera person her the movie that she directed that was at Sundance this year I mean that's really off the radar of a lot of what we talk about when we talk about Oscar season and academy movies in a lot of ways I mean, it's that kind of a cinematographer anyway you know she's a non-fiction cinematographer that, but that's, sometimes, sometimes I'm surprised I'm, by the people that that weren't already members. I mean, Deborah Martin Chase or or Roy Lee, who's they, they were producers, or or someone like um, Ryan Werner in New York, or you know uh, a writer like Sherman Alexie, uh, you know Miranda July, David Henry Huang. I mean, these are people that totally deserve to be members. But, I mean, there are some people who are even more off the beaten track. I mean, the favorite person to talk about on this podcast when only one of us can pronounce his name, a pitch upon where is the thoughtful for Thank example. you. 
<laughs> you got me on that one, Eric. It's phonetic. I mean that that came out of left field, right? That I mean he's he's a he's a world class filmmaker for a certain kind of sensibility. If you've been paying attention to a certain kind of cinema over the last few years, he's never been nominated for an Oscar, never really entrenched himself in that world, really. Well, the I mean, director's what, branch is very foreign, and it is even more so now. You know. Um, but I was surprised, for example, that Tina Fey wasn't a member. IFC's Ariana Baco, the acquisition senior acquisitions executive there, who's been there for years, or last year's Oscar winner for editing for Mad Max Fury Road, Margaret Sixel, you know, sure. or or the Oscar market Elisa Tabak. You know, these are surprising to me. But the, those seem just sort of like oversights. Like, well, maybe the year that somebody lobbied on their behalf, it didn't quite go the way it was supposed to, or they didn't. They move too quickly in terms of finalizing membership. Everybody has a story when they really feel like they belong and they've tried in the past or other people have tried on their behalf. I've had a lot of people tell me that they've given up, you know, that it's just embarrassing after a while. And that's the thing. There are a lot of people who have tried very hard to get in and have never gotten in. And I can't help but wonder, you know, how they, you know, I, I love Mariel Heller. I think she's brilliant. But but that is not someone who has put in a full, you know, they're trying to get younger. They're trying to overcompensate for the fact that so many people in the academy are white and male and old. Uh, but the people that they're inviting should still be people. The, the old academy was you had to have X number of credits. You had to have a lot of stuff, you mileage on your tank already before you before you applied but you have to give them credit for this which is that if you are really paying attention to international film and filmmakers on a yearly basis then a lot of the filmmakers and producers too who stand out here are being incredibly productive in ways that wouldn't necessarily rise to the level of awareness that you know, Oscar season tends to be involved with, but really are doing things that operate outside of that. Somebody like Maren Ade, for example, or Mia Hansen-Love, you know, great French filmmaker, great German filmmaker, who are making movies that are, are not really readily designed for big commercial release. I mean, they're foreign language films in this country, and, and maybe on some level that means that they could make movies that have those sort of campaigns behind them, but they're not. I mean, how that, how that speaks to the fact that the people who are on these these committees actually did a lot of. It's clear to me that they did an enormous amount of homework because those two are have hot movies coming up out of Cannes, out of Berlin, both of them. And, 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 and they also have long bodies of work. It's not like they're newcomers. Um, so so uh, they were, those were very good, solid people to be joining the director's branch. And then you have somebody like Nicholas Winding Refn, who it's like, you know, he, he's like an edgy genre filmmaker of sorts who's been around for a long time. He's been making movies really for over 20 years. but Art, it's- art genre, though. Yeah, art, art, I would so say. The- the art element. Judging from the grosses of Neon Demon last weekend, where I was completely <laughs> off base, just based. You know what it was? We had such an amazing response on the site, on IndieWire. We couldn't give them enough stories about the Neon Demon that I thought that would translate into some kind of box office, and it just didn't. It's not an easy sell. I mean, it's uh, when you look at what it, what it is, it's, like, it's, it's not a movie that invites you in and gets you excited. No, very about flat. I thought it would open, though. I thought it would open, and then it would plummet. But the other thing is that... Because they went wide with it, relatively. But then it it was also... There's a lot of stuff going on right now. It's a summer doldrums. I mean, people are going to see 
Pixar and not going to see Independence Day, so why would they go see Neon Demon? I mean, it's just it, it seems well, it's like a it's a different just... audience. I mean, Neon Demon is more of the art, art house audience. Uh, I thought it would be. I, I guess the comparison I would make would be to The Witch, or we talked about this. You know, the, the, It Follows or something. I mean, it really. It, I thought it might play to the smart horror crowd, but it didn't. But it you really know, the, didn't. The, the smart art house release was Swiss Army Man. Exactly. So that, Day that, twenty four strikes again. But I, but I think that what's fascinating about that is Neon Demon versus Swiss Army Man and that kind of breakdown. If you really look at it, is that Swiss Army Man is is this quirky, weird movie that has a feel good element to it. It's sort of an exciting, fun movie. It's a crowd pleaser, and Neon Demon does not have that aura. For a certain sensibility, it could be seen as a crowd pleaser, but it's. It's grotesque and dark in, in ways that I think people just weren't excited to go see. And you can even make that argument on a bigger scale about Independence Day. It's like, do people want to go think, see things getting demolished or do they want to go feel uplifted or excited? That's Well, why they I think what's work. really happening in the box, and I, I agree with you completely, what's really happening in the, in the box office, which I find um, fascinating, and anyone who really wants to dig into it should check out Tom Brueggemann's Deep Dives every weekend. Uh, he does a preview, which is up now, and he also does the uh, Sunday uh, art house and followed by the 10 takeaways. But but the thing is, you know, uh, and he's and his stuff is what informs me, and he's been ringing this bell for a while this year that the sequels are just not performing the way that, that people would expect. Now, this is one that waited a long time before doing it, but you have to do this sort of magical alchemy of giving them what they want, giving them something new, and giving them uh, a, a fresh twist, or it will seem the same as something they've already seen, and they won't go. And they didn't. I think that's a reasonable enough conclusion in that respect, though. It's, it, does, it does make you wonder if this is a pattern, if there's something else that we're going to see sort of... No, it is a pattern. What's happening with the, with the sequels is that there were nine of them this summer, and only two of them did really well. And uh, those two were uh, the early release Civil War, uh, you know, uh, Captain America, and then uh, obviously uh, Finding Dory, which is huge, which is just demolishing uh, everything. Again, um, say that's easy. I mean, people are just sort of like, what do you want to go see? Oh, go see Finding Dory. Oh, it's cute. It's charming. It's nice. Oh, we'll, we'll go again. Or the people who don't go on opening weekend, they go later. But it's they know like, that Pixar is going to you know, give them. I mean, the thing, the thing that Pixar makes it look easy you know finding nemo is one of the most popular favorite original unbelievably cool movies of all time you know and and to actually deliver that on a sequel again andrew stanton he did it and it's hard it's hard and they twisted themselves into pretzels figuring out you know where how could you transport dory you know in in water and get her from here to there to the other place and and you know they were ingenious in in the way they they created an octopus which is the most difficult spineless thing to do in animation you know it's amazing what they did with that it's going to be yeah. number 1 for the third weekend in a row, which is pretty it, amazing. It also makes you wonder what's, what's happening with Ghostbusters looming on the horizon. The press screenings have been set for that one. It's a real thing now. It's actually, just, it's, it's actually going to happen one way or another, and we could stop talking about whether or not this was a good idea. Stop talking about that 
trailer that everybody got pissed off about for questionable reasons and just actually look at the movie. I but can't wait to see trailer. it. And the, yeah. But at least it's, there is a fresh twist. It's all women. That's a good fresh twist, assuming that it, you know, I guess what people are worried about is that it's going to be another dumb movie as opposed to a smart one. Well, we have to see. We have to look at it. Yeah, and and I also wonder, though, from just a, a marketing standpoint, I mean, the the idea of Hollywood as a nostalgia factory is nothing new, but is is the is a new Ghostbusters movie rebranded with women, is that enough to sell people on this thing, or do they need to basically just rely on a new set of audience who, who want to discover this franchise for the first time? Well, that's true, and, and, and that's a possibility, but also, these are big stars. I mean, Melissa McCarthy is a big star, and I would argue that Kate McKinnon is, too, the SNL star, so... you, you... It's amazing. I mean, I, I want to see this movie because of her more than anybody else. Me, too. Movie. She's the one who looks the funniest in, in well, the materials that I've seen. She was so great when we saw her host the uh, Spirit Awards. She was fantastic. Her her presence is just amazing. I mean, I just feel like this is somebody who we should really be talking about of all the people in this cast. She seems like the one who who should really you know get get to the next level on this one. But it's I, it'll be interesting to see what happens if this movie is just doesn't do well. I mean, it's it's being seen as a litmus test. It's being talked about that way, whether or not. The intention was designed that way for a lot of different things. One is whether or not it is viable now to resurrect a property like this, and the other is whether or not a female-driven blockbuster of this level can really play. Well, they have proved that they can time and time again. The men in the world are so accustomed to having everything aimed at them that they find, you know, there, there has been this sort of bizarre... Uh, backlash, but uh, again, I, I mean, we have to see it. I mean, what's interesting of, of uh, the the third sequel that actually did some business was Conjuring Two, and X Men Apocalypse will barely break even. Neighbors Two uh, was luckily, you know, inexpensive enough so that it it may make its money back, but it won't be a big profit maker. And now you see me too was so expensive that you know it was sixty million the first time, hundred seventeen million the second time that it, it is unlikely to make any money. Alice through the Looking Glass was an outright flop. Teenage right, so Mutant they, Ninja yeah. Turtles and also. I mean, it's, it's, and Independence Day. So these well, are yeah. movies that are going to lose money. Well, lot, are supposed them, to make money. They're spending too much money on them. They're they're not always really good. They're not always being put out there in ways that make people excited to see them. I mean, Conjuring 2 is an interesting exception, right? Because Conjuring 2 is a movie that you know much like, I would say, a Pixar movie uh, on a fundamental level what you're in for, which is a really friggin' scary movie filled with jump scares. If Even if it's not amazing for a, a general audience, they're, they're going to have some, like a physical reaction to this movie. They want to they be frightened, and it does that. It does that really well. So you have word of mouth. You have a recognizable property, so it's established that it's going to do well. And uh, for people who want something a little bit more, it does offer something a little bit more. It's, it's pretty well acted. It's got a great sense of place. Um, some people were saying it's like if Ken Loach you know, made a horror movie or something like that because it's this British working class family. But whatever, it's going a bit far. But, but it, it was but inexpensive. So if it made, if it was made for forty million, I, you know, there was some marketing costs and everything. But the worldwide on it is already three 
you know, it's really, it's really, really big. Because what's scary about 318 it? 318 million was, was how much the first one made. And this one is yeah. going to get close to that. It works on so many levels in that respect. I mean, it's, it's kind of fascinating to see that a movie like that can play. And then you have something like, what's opening this week? Tarzan. I mean, what? All right, let's talk about Tarzan. I, I am fascinated by Tarzan because it is an example of how the studios feel they have to get everybody into the theater to justify the expense of the movie. And there are parts of the movie that work way better than other parts. And yet you can see how they, you know, talked themselves into things that just don't work and, and mainly what doesn't work. And I'm very curious to hear what you think. Cause I actually liked the Tarzan Jane component a lot. I thought it was great. And I thought it looked great in many ways. And there were some amazing visual effects just on a technological basis with, with the, with the apes and the, the you know, flying through the air. But the the problem is that it becomes unbelievable. It because, because he's a real guy. He's not some kind of Superman. He's a real guy. And that was the whole point of Tarzan. And they, they just, uh, and then the whole thing <laughs> with Samuel Jackson, why he needed to be there. What, what was your, what was your reaction? My reaction was I was on purge duty this week. So my colleague David Ehrlich handled Tarzan. So I didn't have to bother seeing it. It's not as bad as all that. But it could have been better. That's the problem with it. The, the, the funny thing is there, there was a point in time where I was obsessively seeing every damn thing that was out there, specifically for reasons like this. So if the opportunity comes up to weigh in, I, I could. In this situation, it just nothing about this movie indicated to me that there, there was it was going to be strong enough to really need to wrestle with it. And, and I feel like it's not a movie that's going to strike a chord with enough moviegoers that it's going to be in that conversation. No, I mean, it's expected to be a failure. It's expected to succumb to Finding Dory on the third weekend. And there is a possibility that The Purge 2 election year, whatever it is, is going to actually, I'm not, I don't know if it will or not, but it could do better than Tarzan and it costs $10 million. <laughs> I love it when that happens. <laughs> Embarrassing, isn't it? Yes. I mean, for somebody. Because Warner <laughs> Brothers, you know, presumably spent, I have to, I, you know, I got to get the figure, but I mean, the, the, bo- the, the number, the box, let me get the figure, the box office, uh, the two movies that are expected to, you know, that might not do as well as The Purge, The Legend of Tarzan and the BFG from Steven Spielberg, those two movies uh, cost over 300 combined, you know? Right. So the BFG, why is the BFG, this is a beloved property that's been around for decades by one of the great commercial filmmakers of our time, the great commercial filmmaker in most people's estimation. Why is the BFG not going to connect with you. I mean, it's, it's not an amazing movie. I was underwhelmed. I think Me too. You and I were, we both saw it at Cannes and, and it was, it was, it was underwhelming. And, and even though Mark Rylance is actually lovely in, in the lead role, uh, it, it's a, it's one of these mocap, uh, you know, feats and Spielberg. I mean, he's working with Weta. He's working with the best visual effects company, arguably along with ILM in the world, who did King Kong, who did uh, The Lord of the Rings, you know, they, they did Avatar. You know, they can do anything now. They, they could do anything. And he wanted the Giants to look 
fantastic. And they are fantastic, but they aren't believable. It's similar. There are I, CGI issues with both of these films, I, Tarzan I and BFG. I get that complaint. I guess the, the thing about it is even though the, it seems like they didn't quite get there with that, if this was a better movie, I, I, we wouldn't be harping on it quite as much. I don't think so. Well, you remember when the Hulk was sort of, you know, hopping around in, you know, the Ang Lee Hulk, and, and you, just, you just didn't believe that he had weight and mass that, that, that I don't know, it just didn't. It just didn't work. Uh, but there is a beautiful haunting moment in BFG where the giant basically takes this young girl into the dreamland. He jumps into a lake and then reappears standing upside down. It, it looks artificial, but it looks No, that, a lot of the stuff in the giant's... Yeah, but then there's another moment where he picks her up in his hand and you go, Oh my God, that's not a real hand. Well, sure, but but again, I mean, it, it's not a real story. I mean, uh, that. Should but be- they're in the real world. They're dealing with real gravity. They, it, it's. It, the, I think there's. I think there's something's going on where where each of these um, filmmakers has to make decisions about what's live action, what's animation, what's the weight of the real world versus the world that is fantasy, and, and how do you merge those two things. And, and I think in each of these cases, in, the, in terms of creating the myth of Tarzan and in creating this universe with, with where, where, the, where, the, where the BFG goes and meets the queen, you know, there's a real queen. <laughs> um, I, it, it's... There's some calculation that's going awry there. Whereas with the Jungle Book, with John Favre, that book, that movie is looking better and better and better as the year progresses. And I'm not, I'm beginning to think it could be an Oscar contender. And, it, it, and in my own mind, I think of it as an animated movie. And they're not going to um, compete in that category. They're going with live action. But right. it, they're, they're, it, it's almost as though the Tarzan movie would have been better as an animated movie. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's, when you think about and it, the BFG. just go all the way in. I mean, it, Zack Snyder's 300 is starting to look like a more impressive approach as the years go by. I mean, that was not a movie they spent a ton of money not on. Not at all. It was considered expensive. very inexpensive. Yeah, it was, it was uh, under under fifty million, I believe. I mean, it was. I think it, it was thirty, but don't quote me. Which, I'd have which, to look it up. But I mean, that's amazing. That's what people spend. That's what studios budget for comedies on, you know. And it's like that should have been a paradigm. But I think people saw it and they 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 thought it looked too weird or hyper real or something like that. I mean, I guess it's difficult to pull off. But is it? I mean, they well, created that a- was the movie that started the the obsession with 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 abs. <laughs> <laughs> that's the other thing you're no, looking I, at Tarzan and you don't believe those are his real the poor guy worked out he was on um, at one of the talk shows the other night talking about this and he worked out like a madman you know but we don't even know what's real and what's what's him and what's what's CG well I mean I, I feel like that in my day-to-day life now I never know what's real and what's like something going on on Twitter that's been you know manufactured by some weird marketing stuff yeah that's true and they also oh the other thing they do in Tarzan is they have they use the thing that that uh, makes people look younger you know so you're watching it and there's some flashbacks to when young Tarzan first met young Jane and they're yeah. all scrubbed and 20-ish you know 
Yeah, that's. I mean, that sort of thing is just so bizarre. It's a. It's like it what throws Kanye, you out of the movie. Yeah, it's like Kanye West when he like artificially inserts celebrities into his famous video. That's one thing because it's it's sort of like the artificiality. It's of like it. it's sampling. Part of the point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In the case of a storytelling, it's like in Iron Man they did it and there was context for it because you know Robert Downey Jr. was re you know re exploring some of it from his youth or something like that. But I mean that yeah, was actually sort of, legitimate because he's t- he's like a t- teenager i don't know in that movie i accepted it and in this movie it threw me out of the movie maybe because the two people we're talking about are already so gorgeous and and they really are and and they usually you would do that with makeup that's what makeup is for you would do something to make them look younger without having to effectively uh scrub them up with with cgi yeah, well, I guess the, I, you live and learn, right? As a stu- the studio recovers, maybe they'll they'll try not to do this for for a while. I mean, they, 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 there needs to be a list on somebody's wall where they just say basically, like, these are the effects that we should not try to do because people get annoyed by them. And what what actually are you doing in terms of the expansion of the storytelling process if all you're doing is doing something that people are going to notice you're doing? You know, it's if you're do if John Luke Godard, that's part of the point. But in the context of a polished commercial movie, you're just distracting the audience and you're kind of weakening an already weak story. So, so what's going to happen here? I mean, what's what's sort of sad about this is that you know David Yates is a really good director. He worked on all the Harry Potter movies, and and there you know there's there's lots of of talented people that labored long and hard it reminds me of superman you know the versus batman it's the same problem because what you end up with is that there's somebody at the top of warner brothers who's supervising all of this who's who isn't making sure that this turns out perfectly the way it needs to be and and what's sad about it is that they actually aimed at an intelligent um, you know, there's a lot of exposition about King Leopold and the Congo and, and the, the fact that he was going to enslave a lot of the population and you're getting caught up in, in the question of, of, of the real people there who, who are, are being disrupted and, and reminded of all the ways that that happens now or the ways that that happened in terms of people being drawn into slavery and brought to America. You know, it raises a lot of valid issues dramatically and and Jaiman Hansu is very good in it and everything and then Samuel Jackson is playing an American an African American going over there and who's intelligent and smart and who's a sidekick and who's you know bizarre in every way you know in terms of what his role is in the movie and what he's supposed to be doing and and uh I I feel like there should have been smarter people figuring out what was right and wrong with this movie if it was this expensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ancient conversation at this point. I cannot... In other words, this is not a bimbo stupid movie. <laughs> this is a smart movie that's trying to be popular. I it, think I'm going to have to take your word for it on that one, but uh, I cannot in good conscience let us end our podcast talking about Tarzan. We should find something a little bit more substantial, perhaps opening this week, like Life Animated. Very uh, good, very good. Probably a, an Oscar contender. Very well done. Really, really actually powerful movie about an autistic kid who gets his 
life back in many ways starts to relearn how to interact with the world through Disney animated film. I mean, it's, it's great PR for Disney and the Disney kind of vibe, but it's also, I mean, I think it's a really effective way at showing how the 90s era understanding of what autism was was very limited. And somehow this family hacked the system in some ways through the ability for this kid to, to look at stories, fictional stories, and, and start to discover the world again. And it's really effective the way that it shows that process, that learning process. So, um, so I, I hope that people go see it because it, it, it's actually, as I, I mean, you know how I am about sentimental stories. I'm always inherently skeptical because I'm a cold-hearted critic. I would and say this stuff. earns it. It works. It, it definitely works. And if you're, you're done seeing the new Pixar movie for the zillionth time, this might be a more kind of natural step beyond it. So uh, consider it. Next week, we'll come back into all this stuff. We've got more Oscar things building up. And uh, I'm sure that uh, we can keep digging through this new membership list. There's probably a few people we haven't uh, talked through yet. And uh, who knows? Maybe we'll even anticipate the Ghostbusters even further by then. So until then, Anne. I'm going to be going to be off next week. By the way, so we so when we come back, we can talk about the Ghostbusters F after we've seen it. Even better to talk about movies we've actually seen. It's a rare luxury these days. <laughs> <laughs> See you later. <laughs>